You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. This is the first time since 1991 that you've had the Judiciary Committee deadlock on a vote like this. These things are intensely political for the one moment that they shine brightest. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. The apparent massacre of civilians at Bucha hits the pattern of Russia's conduct of this war from the beginning. The days of borrowing money from the Treasury to pay for trillions of dollars of COVID relief are over. Bloomberg Sound On. With Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. We've got a lot to cover today. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick here with my Bloomberg government colleague Emily Wilkins. We are in for Joe today in his stead. We're going to talk about Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky pleading for peace in an address to the United Nations Security Council. Meanwhile, senators are struggling just this afternoon to move ahead on a $10 billion COVID bill. There's also a special election today. It's election day in California, at least, to replace former Congressman Devin Nunes. Uh, And yes, in big news, the Capitol Police caught that fox that was running around on Capitol Hill biting people. We got a lot to talk about. Uh, We're going to bring in Congressman Ken Calvert from from uh, California. Greg Giroux, Bloomberg government's elections reporter, is going to join us. Bill McGinley, who's a principal at the Vogel Group and previously was a White House cabinet secretary, as well as Bloomberg politics contributor Jeannie Shianzano. Obviously, the top issue dominating Washington's attention right now is still the war in Ukraine. And Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky uh, addressed the United Nations Security Council today. To tee things off, let's listen to what he had to say. The Russian military and those who gave them orders must be brought to justice immediately for war crimes in Ukraine. Show all the other potential war criminals in the world how they will be punished. If the biggest one is punished, then everyone is punished. That was the translator for Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky uh, addressing the United Nations Security Council. Now let's bring in Congressman Ken Calvert. He's a Republican from California. Really wanted to have him on the show, especially because he is the top Republican for defense appropriations in the House. Uh, And that's a major issue uh, broadly and specifically with an eye on Ukraine. Congressman, very grateful to have you on with us today. Uh, Let's begin with, with, uh, I guess, one of the broader issues in Ukraine. 
Ukraine. The president has has touched on the idea of war crimes being committed. That's something the Ukrainian president has talked about. Uh, before we get into the funding and the, the mechanism of what Congress does, uh, do you believe, based on what you've seen, war crimes is an appropriate phrase? And if so, what does the U.S. do? What's our response from the U.S.? Uh, yes, uh, war crimes have taken place. I think they're accumulating the evidence. Uh, Ukrainian prosecutors at the present time are are carefully accumulating the evidence to make their case that uh, war crimes were committed in Ukraine. And uh, I think that that those who are responsible, everyone who's responsible, should uh, be uh, exposed and uh, potentially put on trial at The Hague. So when it comes to congressional action, uh, a little while back, Senators Lindsey Graham and Chris Murphy spoke a bit about how the last bill providing resources to Ukraine was really more of a, a down payment in their view. Do you see another Ukraine bill coming, or, or what should we look for from Congress in the weeks ahead? Well, you know, we passed a pretty extensive bill, uh, but we're spending quite a bit of money. It included $13.36 billion in military, economic, and humanitarian assistance to Ukraine. However, they're burning through uh, that ammunition very rapidly, and they're using it to great effect. Uh, obviously, the Javelin missile, uh, which has been very effective in taking out tanks, stingers, which have been taking out helicopters and uh, low-flying aircraft, the switchblades, which uh, we don't have a lot of, but uh, it's a very effective weapon, both the switchblade 200 and the 600, which the 600 will take out armor. Um, but we need to do more. And um, they, uh, the Ukrainians are not asking for us to, to go fight their war. They're just asking for the material to, where they can defeat Russia. You know, Congressman, we we keep hearing, and it does seem like there's a lot of bipartisan support for Ukraine and to do more. So what is sort of the, the outlook right now on providing funding to Ukraine, on providing missiles and weapons to Ukraine, on providing humanitarian aid to Ukraine? I mean, is this something that, that Congress, you know, needs to be regularly moving on various bills once a month or so? What's the sort of long-term plan here? Well, we're keeping a very close eye on this. Obviously, we just did a substantial amount of money. We'll be looking at this uh, very carefully, uh, what, uh, what we can send in and what can be effectively used. Uh, the Russians uh, obviously uh, are not doing well. Uh, they are retreating back uh, to the eastern part of the country, uh, where the uh, Ukrainians are continuing to attack very effectively as they, they move back, or some people call retreat. Uh, but they're not done yet, and uh, I suspect the Russians will regroup, and uh, and uh, this is going to go on for some time. So yes, we're going to have to reevaluate, uh, you know, what we're going to need to spend. We cannot allow Russia to prevail uh, in in basically taking offensive action against a peaceful nation uh, to uh, for political purposes. That's that cannot be allowed. On broader defense issues, Congressman, uh, there's a lot of pushback from a number of Republicans in the House and Senate when uh, the president, President Biden, called for $813 billion in defense-related funding for fiscal 2023 in his budget request. That's about a 4% increase. Uh, a number of Republicans, uh, Senator Inhofe on armed services, uh, a, a variety of, of Republicans who support uh, military funding called for a much higher number. Some of them said this should probably go 5% 
percent beyond the rate of inflation. If I'm looking at the Bloomberg terminal now, I, I see the average uh, of recent forecasts for 2022 is about six percent. I mean, are we talking about Republicans pushing for something like an 11 percent uh, defense funding boost, or what's what's your ballpark figure that you want to see for defense-related funds in fiscal 2023? Well, General Mattis laid down the national defense strategy. Uh, during the previous administration, where we would, uh, to have a credible defense, we need to have a net increase of 3 to 5% above inflation. So if core inflation, say, is at 6%, we should be at a minimum 9% to 11% uh, in order to maintain a credible defense and to make sure that we have enough ships, enough planes, enough equipment, and to maintain a high quality of life for the men and women who serve in the United States military. Uh, and four percent is not going to cut it, and uh, I, we're making it very clear that that's you know that's not going to be acceptable. Just as it wasn't acceptable in the last budget, where we uh, said, "Look, uh, we're going to have to lower non-defense discretionary spending, raise defense, uh, and make sure that there's not uh, any riders or removal of language that's been, uh, been committed in the appropriation bills in the past." Right. Well, in the 2022 talks. Uh, appropriators at the highest level kind of left that discussion on just the basics of how much do we spend on defense and non-defense until months after the deadline when it came to bipartisan, bicameral talks. What is the outlook on settling on a realistic defense number and having it have bipartisan support? Are things moving along in Congress? Look, everybody in this town knows that the defense number has to go up and uh, non-defense has to come down, and uh, let's get to it, and let's uh, pass these appropriation bills on time. Continuing resolutions cost us a tremendous amount of money. Uh, I, I think people in America don't realize the billions of dollars were wasted because we're operating the, United, the largest enterprise in the world, the United States military, under a continuing resolution. Uh, so hopefully we can get these bills done on time uh, for the good of the, the taxpayer and for the good of our own national security. Congressman, I want to ask you a little bit about the COVID-19 funding package that's going through the Senate, that $10 billion for vaccines, for medications, a lot of preventative care. I mean, this is something that you have seen Republican support on in the Senate. Do you, will you and will your colleagues be supporting this if that bill comes to the House? Well, you know, why don't we see the final language on that? I know uh, Mitt Romney and others have negotiated this uh, bill. Supposedly, it's offset. I'd like to see what those offsets are and uh, and see what exactly is in this bill. Can, can I and, just sir, uh, and I've heard generically what is in it, but I want to see more specifics. Can I can I just ask in general, do you think that the US does need to continue putting funding into vaccines, into these uh, medications and preparedness if another wave comes? Well, as you know, we have spent a tremendous amount of money uh, we have sent over to uh, various government agencies to do exactly that. And we've yet to see a complete accounting of what and how those dollars have been spent, which I'd like to see. Uh, but nevertheless, this bill may come up this week. Uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to sitting down and reading through it to understand the specifics on that and seeing what, uh, what it accomplishes or may not accomplish. Well, Congressman, over in the Senate, one of the conversations uh, was that it, perhaps some Republicans wanted a vote on this supplemental funding measure 
on the Title 42 issue, the the uh, program, uh, the directive from the CDC that the president just decided to end uh, that allowed uh, under pandemic uh, justification for the the quick uh, removal of people from the border. What Aside from that conversation in the Senate about maybe an amendment on Title 42, what do you want Congress to do in response to that? Because I know there's been a lot of pushback from uh, Republicans and some Democrats. Well, if there's any way we can uh, make sure that Title 42 is enforced and continues to be enforced beyond that May 23rd deadline, uh, I'm for it. I've, I've been getting hearing from the border folks uh, that uh, we may have up to 18,000 people a day crossing that border. Uh, it's already impacting uh, the, the United States. We can only absorb so much. And so uh, I think it's a mistake to remove the Title 42, and, and uh, we're going to do everything we can in our power to uh, to make sure that people understand that, that this is uh, is horrible policy for the United States, and and we should stop it. By the way, we, a number of people who are on the terrorist watch list have already crossed into the United States. And we know that because mm-hmm. uh, uh, we we've captured a number, so we know a number have already gotten through with, that have not been captured. Right. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Congressman Ken Calvert, Republican from California, key member on defense appropriations. Uh, Emily, a lot to look forward to there, uh, given, you know, it sounds like there's going to be action on potentially uh, COVID aid coming, possibly another Ukraine bill, uh, a lot to watch from members like Calvert on appropriations. Oh, there's so much. I mean, these are the must-do things that Congress has to get done. They have to pass that spending. Something needs to happen here. Coming up, we're going to go to the panel, Bill McGinley at the Vogel Group, as well as Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Sheehan-Zano. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick with Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Show is out today, but this is Emily Wilkins and with my co-host Jack Fitzpatrick, we are filling in for him. And we're going, we just heard uh, from Congressman Ken Calvert talking a little bit about a number of different things. I mean, one of the big things uh, that he's got a hand in is putting together that defense budget for the next year. And Jack, it struck, one of the things that struck me when we were chatting with him was just how much he wants that defense increase to be. I mean, I know that Republicans, that they love their defense spending, but he said a minimum, I think of nine to 11 percent. That's that's got to be a lot of money right there. Yeah, this really shows you the way inflation and also the war in Ukraine has played into that debate. Uh, We just saw uh, last week the proposal from the president calling for about a four percent increase in military funding. That's tough. You know, he gets pushback from progressives who want to cut defense spending. Uh, But when you hear Congressman Calvert, who has a hand in these negotiations, call for a nine to 11 percent increase, one, there's the inflation factor. Two, there's the war in Ukraine. Doing the math, that that would equal between a 69 and $85 billion defense increase. So they've got a lot of work to do, it seems, between the Democrats and Republicans, a, a big delta between what they envision for a military budget. Yeah, we're definitely expecting a battle 
battle there between the progressives and, and even some moderate Democrats have come out and really criticized what Biden has has put forward in his proposal. Well, to discuss this and more, we're going to bring in our star panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shianzano and Bill McGinley, who's a principal at the Vogel Group and a former White House cabinet secretary. Thank you both so much for joining us. Bill, let's just get a little perspective here. Obviously, these budget proposals that we saw from the White House, it's just a proposal. Lawmakers are going to change it. What do you think is, is sort of realistic to expect this year in terms of the amount of defense spending versus domestic spending? I think the defense spending is definitely going to go up. And as you said, you know, a president's budget is not something that anybody expects to be passed. It's really a messaging uh, document that uh, that lays out the president's priorities and where he wants the taxpayer funds to go. A 4% increase given the land war uh, in Ukraine, uh, plus increasing tensions over in China, uh, plus the increasing uh, tensions in the Middle East. Um, I think that 4% is not going to cut it. I think that the, the, the Congress, both chambers are going to come together uh, and try and do something more. There will be resistance from the progressives and some of the moderates um, on this, especially if there have to be offsets on the, on the uh, domestic side. Uh, but the world has gotten more complicated, and there's far too many threats to the United States for us to, to not uh, meet the moment with, a, with the, uh, the defense budget. No, that's definitely a good point, you know, as we're debating more, potentially more funding for Ukraine. Uh, this budget debate is going to play out for the next couple months. In the short term, though, we've got that $10 billion funding bill on COVID aid. Uh, just before the program started, the Senate uh, failed to pass it. Uh, it went down. You saw most Republicans oppose it because they're pushing to get an amendment to restore what is known as Title 42. Uh, it sounds kind of wonky, but basically it was something that was invoked during the pandemic to turn back many asylum seekers and other migrants at the border since uh, the start of the pandemic. So that was a procedural vote. They're going to keep trying and working on this. But Jeannie, just wanted to ask you a little bit here. I mean, what could it mean for, for this whole Title 42, this immigration piece, to be attached to this larger COVID bill? So optimistic about the budget a couple months. I'm thinking this is going to take, you know, <laughs> past the midterm. I'm so sorry, Emily. 11 um, months is a, is a couple months. That, that's right. In Congress speak. You've been there too long, Emily. Um, you know, I, I think Title 42 is so fascinating because, you know, this speaks to the fact that it has been raised repeatedly about in the context of the primary elections on the Republican side. So I was looking over Kevin McCarthy's tweets, as I like to do this weekend, and nine out of 10 of those tweets in a one-day period were about immigration. We heard in some of the Sunday talk shows, 30% of GOP primary ads already are on immigration. It is one of the key midterm issues, inflation, then immigration, and then crime and education as three and four. So that's why they are going to use it even procedurally to hold up this bill. And it is a real concern. I mean, you were just hearing from the, from the congressman, 18,000 people crossing per day. We're at almost 2 million. It's a big number. It's a big concern. It's going to play big in the, in the midterms. And that's why they're talking about it in the context of this COVID relief bill well, or Jeannie, COVID I, preventive I, bill, I should yeah, say. Yeah. Jeannie, I, I hear you on the importance of immigration to a number of lawmakers. But, you know, the last thing that held this up just a, a week or so ago was the debate over, well, do we 
we make up for this $10 billion in COVID funding by pulling back state and local aid, or where does that money come from? And there have been a number of disagreements that have tripped them up on this, you know, for the federal government, fairly small uh, COVID funding bill. Uh, Bill, what should we make of that? I mean, has the COVID response just become less of a priority to lawmakers? Look, I think that the COVID response still is a priority for lawmakers. And as you said, uh, one of the sticking points is going to be the offsets and where they're going to come. Uh, a lot of this is coming from money that's already been appropriated but hasn't been authorized. Um, one of the things that the progressives are complaining about is that it doesn't have any international aid uh, for COVID. Uh, but where it's coming from is some of the relief for some of the industries. And let's remember this $10 billion, as you said before, is supposed to go for preventative measures. Uh, for research, for therapeutics, for testing supplies, vaccines. But importantly, one of the things that was negotiated uh, by Romney and the Democrats um, was a notification to Congress so that if Mm -hmm. HHS, because all this money is going to HHS. Mm -hmm. And so if HHS is going to spend more than $50 million, they're supposed to give Congress 48 hours notice about how they're going to spend that money. This is definitely a debate that we're going to continue to follow for the rest of this week. Coming up, we're going to be chatting with Greg Jabreau about a recent retirement of a major lawmaker. I'm Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg. With Emily Wilkins from Bloomberg Government, I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. We are in today for Joe Matthew, and we're going to bring in our other Bloomberg Government colleague, Greg Giroux, who covers elections for BGov. Uh, it is an election day somewhere. It's a you know it's it's five o'clock somewhere. It's uh, it's election day somewhere. There's always something happening <laughs> on the campaign trail, especially as we get closer to the midterms. Now, this is an interesting one. This is not a midterm race. This is a, a special election to replace the seat vacated vacated in the House by Devin Nunes, uh, a a Trump loyalist uh, House Republican who actually left Congress to become CEO of the Trump Media and Technology Group. They've got a a social network and all of that. Uh, It'll be interesting partly because they will serve through the end of the year, but then they've got to run separately in November as well. So somebody might have to run twice in one year. I've got to ask Greg about this. Greg, this seems just like a strange situation. We've got a number of candidates vying for this very brief stint in Congress, but then they would have to also be on the ballot in November. Is there a favorite or how is this going to work out? And and how long is this person actually going to end up being a member of Congress? Yeah, it's a really strange election because of redistricting. Um, Basically, the person, it's a low-key election because outside groups aren't really spending any money in this seat, as you mentioned, formerly held by Devin Nunes. And a Republican is likely to succeed Devin Nunes. It's only a matter of whether it's tonight or in June. So you have four Republicans and two Democrats running on one ballot, and you need a majority of the vote for an outright victory. Otherwise, you go to a runoff election in June. Now, the it's it's low key because no one's really uh, playing in this race from the national party perspective, and the winner is actually likely to be a caretaker who just is going to fill out the rest of Devin Nunes's term. Three of the candidates have no plans to run in a revised congressional district, and three of the other candidates are running against Jim Costa, a Democratic congressman from another district. That's because of how the lines are redrawn by a commission. Um, right. These are the lines. The the, the the election that's tonight is being held under the lot the current lines, whereas the full-term election is being held under the new map, which looks a lot different than the current map. 
as if it wasn't crazy <laughs> enough, we've got uh, to throw in some redistricting changes in there. Uh, now, I just have to ask, Greg, because it's Devin, Nunes, Devin Nunes's seat, uh, are, are we going to learn anything about sort of Trump's standing in the Republican Party from this? It, what, what is the uh, specter of the former president when it comes to this particular race? Yeah, he stayed out of this race. Um, it's very likely to elect a Republican. It's a Republican-leaning area in the Fresno area. Uh, Trump won the district by a modest margin, five and a half points, six points. Um, but um, in a political environment like this, it's likely to uh, vote more Republican than it would have in 2020. Uh, but the former president has stayed out of the race. Um, it is highly likely that a Republican will succeed Devin Nunes. So I understand in the other uh, big electoral news today, Fred Upton, the longtime congressman uh, who served in the House since 1987 uh, from Michigan, said he's going to retire at the end of his term. And Emily, I know that you caught up with him. Let's hear uh, the sound that you got in your uh, your conversation with Congressman Upton. My district was cut like Zorro three different ways. So it's, you know, I've been here 36 years. When I first ran, I thought I'd be here 10. Yeah, Congressman Fred Upton from Michigan, who's been in Congress for 36 years. He's one of the longest tenured members. He's held some very prominent chairmanships. Uh, but, Greg, I, I kind of want to dig into this here because, you know, Upton, he was one of the 10 Republicans to vote to impeach Trump. He's taken a number of other votes um, that have kind of run con- counter to a lot of members of his party. He's blamed redistricting. But is that really fair? Because I, I was looking at some maps and it doesn't seem like his district has changed all that much. Yeah, so a commission redrew Michigan's congressional districts, and Upton actually got a decent draw out of it. It, he, it did it did slice up districts here and there. That's fair to say, but uh, he was um, he would have been in a an incumbent versus an incumbent matchup against another Republican, Bill Heisinger. But Upton would have had Upton currently represents about sixty four percent of the people in that redrawn district, compared to just twenty five percent for Heisinger. So Upton would have entered that race had he chosen to pursue it. Uh, with a decent home court advantage, he has uh, $1.5 million in his campaign account um, that he could have used for that race. So, um, you know, he, he certainly would have been a, a highly competitive candidate, but uh, one wonders uh, how much uh, Trump would have intervened in that race given uh, Upton's vote to impeach him. Yeah, I think that's definitely a consideration here, even though Upton uh, focused more on redistricting. D- does his retirement have a wider impact on the electoral map? Uh, well, his district is likely to be won by Bill Huizinga. Now, it's not going to really, I think, affect the uh, breakdown of the party delegation in Michigan, or it's not a seat that you know Democrats are uh, going to have any chance of flipping. Um, but it does, I think, you know, Upton is kind of a, a throwback. He's been in the House since 1987, as you all mentioned. It's longer than all but four members. You know, he came to Congress at a time when uh, there was a Democratic U.S. House majority that you know Upton and a lot of other people thought would go on for decades, and so he's always his M.O. has always been to kind of work with Democrats. His best friend in Congress is a Democrat, fellow Michigander Debbie Dingell. He's worked with. Joe Biden on the 21st Century Cures Act, which is probably Upton's biggest legislative accomplishment. So, and he's probably a band of what I'd call kind of moderately conservative Republicans who have, uh, you know, voted with and worked with, collaborated with uh, uh, Democrats in, in in a way that's probably not as common as it was when Upton first came to Congress. 
And, and it's got to be telling given that he could have very likely expected to end up in the majority again. It, it, what does it tell us uh, very briefly, Greg, that it, evidently he didn't feel the need to work on some legislation and get excited about going back into the majority as many Republicans are in the House? Yeah, that's right. And maybe uh, I didn't ask him. I haven't asked him this, but, um, you know, uh, there are party term limits in the Republican conference on uh, being the, you know, the top member on a committee. And he was uh, he couldn't return as chairman of the Influential Energy and Commerce Committee because of those party term limits. He'd served uh, six years uh, chairing that committee. Um, you know, he's, he's been there 36 years. Um, but he's uh, even though he's one of the most senior members of Congress at 68, he's right. far from the oldest. And, you know, plenty of time for him to spend with his family in retirement now. Right. This could actually be one of the people who spends more time with their family, a commonly used phrase when people leave. Thank you, Greg Giroux. <laughs> We're going back to Emily and Jeannie Sheehan-Zano. With Emily Wilkins, I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. This is Emily Wilkins here with my co-host, Bloomberg Government's Jack Fitzpatrick. We are in for Joe Matthew today, and we are reassembling our panel with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Bill McGinley. Uh, a lot to discuss here, but we were just hearing uh, from Greg Giroux, our uh, politics guru over at Bloomberg Government. And Bill, I, I wanted to sort of pick up on something that, that Greg was talking about. Um, he was mentioning how Fred Upton uh, said that, you know, the reason that he had decided to retire was because of his district. But uh, Upton has a pretty good shot to win in his new district. I'm wondering what Upton's decision to retire says about uh, former President Trump's current hold on the Republican Party. We can uh, see if Jeannie's with us. I, I'm curious what Jeannie thinks about that. Well, I, I think this is the big question, right? And and um, I think we have to take a wait-and-see attitude, quite frankly. So the news over yep. the weekend that Sarah Palin, for instance, is you know putting her name into this huge special election in Alaska, in my mind, that is going to give us an indicator sometime in June about how much you know power Donald Trump has in these House primaries. And that, I think, is going to be a precursor to what happens in Wyoming because those states are so similar. And as you look at Upton in Michigan— and you look at other you know, districts around the country, I think we still have to take a wait-and-see attitude. He is the most well-known and popular Republican um, in, in the country, certainly, and he's got a lot of funding on, on his side. So whether he plays and how he plays, I still think we have to take a wait-and-see attitude. For sure. And Bill, I do want to get your thoughts on this because I know you've got that that background. Uh, you're former working for the National Republican Senatorial Committee. You know about elections. Uh, what does it say that Fred Upton, one of the 10 Republicans to vote to impeach Trump, is now deciding that he's going to retire from a district that, that is pretty favorable to him? I think there's quite a bit of turnover in the Republican Party. I think some of the old guard um, is not willing to stay on. Uh, with some of the younger members in a Trump-dominated GOP. 
Um, and I think, you know, really what it's going to come down to is the electorate. Uh, the GOP has such a great opportunity. We're seeing the DCCC uh, putting districts on their watch list where they're directing donors to give um, that were Biden plus over 10. Um, and the, the map is so favorable right now to Republicans. Uh, these primaries are going to be critically important because the only way that the Dems are going to be able to, the Democrats are going to be able to uh, try and mitigate uh, their losses is to try and turn some of these uh, Republican candidates into unacceptable alternatives uh, to the Democratic in incumbents that they're running against. Um, President Trump has a lot of sway over the Republican Party, especially with the primary electorate. And so I think we're going to see quite a few Trump-backed uh, candidates go up against incumbent Democrats, um, and they're going to be personal contests. I think the Democrats are going to fight with everything that they have to try and make them unacceptable alternatives. But I still think the environment in the Biden administration and these record low numbers at the end of the day are just not they're not going to be able to overcome uh, such a negative environment. The Republicans are going to do well. Yeah, I think even Upton told me today that he does think that Republicans are, are going to hold or going to rather um, win the House, even though he thinks it'll be by a slight majority. Uh, on the other side of uh, Pennsylvania Avenue, former President Barack Obama returned to the White House today for the first time since leaving office in 2017. The occasion was the 12th anniversary of the Affordable Care, Affordable Care Act passed during his tenure and to usher in new additions for the health care bill. Uh, President Biden was also there, and uh, President Obama discussed his pride in the 2010 passage of the Affordable Care Act uh, while making a, a bit of a reference to Biden's infamous hot mic moment. We've got the sound on that. To get the bill passed, we had to make compromises. We didn't get everything we wanted. That wasn't a reason not to do it. If you can get millions of people health coverage and better protection, it is, to quote a famous American, a pretty big deal. The joke there, of course, is that uh, when he was vice president, uh, Biden famously called uh, this legislation a big. And then there's a word that starts with F that I can't say on the radio, a big F deal. Uh, I'll let y'all fill it in. But but Jeannie, I, I just wanted to talk a little bit. I mean, one thing we heard Obama, Obama talk about was that they had to make compromises, that they didn't get everything they wanted. Is this a message to Democrats right now? It is, you know, in several ways. It, it is so fascinating to see Barack Obama come back. It's the first time he's been back to the White House. And even though he and Joe Biden apparently reportedly talk and communicate periodically, we haven't seen them publicly together throughout the administration so far. But they are bringing him back now to celebrate this great achievement for Democrats, which was the passage of Obamacare. And also to highlight, this is a bill that was, as we all remember, a hard-fought bill to get through Congress. Republicans tried desperately many times to repeal it and rescind it. They couldn't do it. And it is more popular than ever at this point. And also the Biden administration wants to highlight the fact that they've done a lot over the last year. And I think this is an untold story of the administration to strengthen Obamacare. Everything from the legislative realm to the regulatory side, signups are up. It is more affordable. And we heard uh, Vice President Harris and then President Obama and President Biden calling for an expansion of the or make the to make the subsidies in the in the um, American Rescue Plan permanent. So they want to highlight this, celebrate it because this is everything the Democrats want to go into this midterm. And Bill is absolutely right; the numbers look definitely in the Republicans' favor. But if they can chip away at this by focusing on popular pieces of legislation like the Affordable Care Act, they're going to do it. 
So I, I find it a little funny that we're talking so much about two former presidents, but these are two former presidents, uh, Obama and Trump, who loom large over their parties in different ways, uh, but certainly have a certain kind of political appeal. Uh, Bill, what do you make of this? I, you know, yes, they were talking about the Affordable Care Act. Yes, President Biden signed an executive order meant to close loopholes on ACA coverage. But to what extent do you think this was about giving President Biden a little bit of a political boost with maybe some nostalgia for the Obama years at a time when President Biden's poll numbers are, are so low? I think everything that the administration has tried to do to turn the corner um, on these horrible poll numbers and the sentiment in the country has failed. And I think now what they're doing is they're trying to reach back and try and grab some of the uh, popular politicians with their base, such as President Obama, to try and bolster those numbers and probably try to get enthusiasm, enthusiasm up uh, just a little bit. I think it's going to fall on deaf ears in terms of the, the, the big middle uh, and independence. When you look at all the problems that these families are facing, everything from inflation uh, to supply chain to education and parental rights, um, a lot of the a lot of the issues that are cutting in favor of the Republicans and that the Republicans are hammering home. Um, I think President Obama, his visit to the White House today gets a lot of play um, on the evening news to try and give uh, President Biden uh, a little bit of a boost. But at the end of the day, I think it's probably a one a one day story. My guess is, is the White House is going to try and get President Obama out on the road to try and defend some of their really vulnerable House uh, members and senators as they tried to. Uh, uh, seek re-election and, and hope that the uh, base is going to be energized by its visit. I just don't think it's going to carry the day. I think that the numbers right now are too bad for Democrats. Well, one thing that we know, regardless of the issue, something that uh, tends to play a role is social media. And we do have some news on that, that Elon Musk is joining the board of Twitter. He became the social media company's largest shareholder. And while his joining has been somewhat controversial, he has a fan in Congress, the top Republican in the House, Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. I think it's fabulous. Oh, I mean, you, you look at what Elon, Elon believes in freedom. Elon is an entrepreneur. Elon is a, 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 such an American success story. So high, high praise there uh, from Leader McCarthy. And this really comes at an interesting time because Congress has criticized big tech for censoring conservative views. Uh, Jeannie, I'm wondering, does someone like Elon Musk being so involved with Twitter kind of change the political outlook for what Congress wants to do when it comes to regulating big tech? You know, it's been one of the strange areas where there's been sort of bipartisan support for different reasons, or bipartisan agreement, I should say, for different reasons. Republicans and Democrats have all been sort of clamoring to take a stab and a step in regulating big tech and social media. And, you know, I think it's an open question because it's unclear to me what Elon Musk has in mind. He's been suggesting for weeks that Twitter doesn't allow for enough free speech. He's talked about the algorithm, but it's unclear to me exactly what he wants to see. He's talking, you know, tweeting about significant improvements to Twitter in coming months. I don't know what that means. And I'm curious to see whatever it means, how Congress reacts to that, because I'm not convinced, by the way, that that is going to diminish the call, for instance, to address, you know, challenges from social media as it pertains to things like young people and the impact on the way in which young women, for instance, view their bodies and other things that Congress has really been delving into over the last two years. 
Aside from the politics and, and and all of that, I'm curious, Bill, what you make of if Musk's if Musk has a seat on Twitter's board, what does it mean for Twitter? Given that he really is somebody who has a bit of a history of kind of shooting from the hip, he, he put out a Twitter poll uh, asking users if they want an edit button. He's done Twitter polls on what uh, stocks he should buy. Uh, he got in a little bit of hot water over uh, smoking a joint during an interview on a podcast. Uh, that that seems to be an issue, Emily. Yeah, I mean, it'll be very interesting to see uh, what the future of Twitter is going to be with Musk on the board. But of course, he's he's one out of multiple board members. Uh, always keeping it interesting there. Well, thank you so much to our panel, to Jeannie and Bill for joining us today, as well as Congressman Ken Calvert and Bloomberg government's Greg Jabrow. Uh, we've got more lawmakers who will be joining us tomorrow. Uh, Democrat Derek Kilmer of Washington. But for now, I'm Emily Wilkins here with Jack Fitzpatrick, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.